what was the thing that radicalized you? I said, for me, it was the food pyramid. I was like, how many years did I just sit there and people told me that the food pyramid is the right way to eat? It's based on science. If I was sitting there in eighth grade health class and I questioned the food pyramid, they would have been like, you're anti-science, you know, this is what the experts have done. And if you go against it, you know, you're just being rogue and dangerous and whatever. I was like, all right, well, that was completely wrong. So what else is completely wrong? You cannot opt out of money. It, it's not a choice to have money to have an impact on your life. Health is very obvious. Even if you are a hunter-gatherer, you, you can't opt out of health affecting your life. That's why these two topics have consumed me for the last 15 years. I can't think of more important topics than health and money. This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Decentralized Radio. Today, we have John Haar on the line. John, how's it going? What's up, Tristan? Great to be here, man. Excited to get into this. Yeah, this is kind of a unique discussion, and, and Stephen Lubka set us up. We connected on a Spaces a few months back, but John is uh, a managing director, managing director at Swan Private, so he's part of the Swan clan, the Bitcoin clan, which is awesome, but he's also very much into ancestral living and circadian biology as we are. So it's not always we get to talk about both of these on one podcast. I did that with Steven. But yeah, I think it'll be a fun chat. Um, and Ryan is soaking in the sunshine as well in his backyard or side yard here. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited. I got to like we were talking pre show just got to soak all this in before the winter, the winter is upon us. I mean, I've been seeing the the, the UTA signs on the highway saying winter is coming. I'm like, they're right. I got to be out here before I get all. Well, there's already been in. snow. Yeah. In the mountains. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, uh, yeah. I, could... I was driving through 70 on the way back from Denver, uh, two days ago and there's tons of snow Oh yeah, past like 8,000 feet, like tons of snow. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be a wild winter, I bet. And the UV today, the peak is about four and it was only four for like 45 minutes. So it's fleeting, but Getting back to John, I guess, how did you, or what came first, maybe, from a sovereign individual perspective? Was it the Bitcoin, or was it the health rabbit holes? Because it's kind of a similar teeter-tottering uh, that I have, and that I have had for the past five years, so I'm curious. Yeah, man, I'd love to get into that. I love the two topics. I also love how we can kind of connect why it seems that there is a decent amount of overlap between people mm -hmm. who care about both of them. For me, the first one was the health, nutrition, biology side of things. Um, sound money came pretty soon after that. And then Bitcoin came like a few years after that. And I can explain what I mean there. But the first one for me was more the health, nutrition, sleep, uh, biology side of things. And I, I have to um, give credit to a friend who I had in college. He, for me, it was the paleo diet, which kind of like clued me in to, okay, maybe some of the stuff that I've been learning, like, you know, maybe the food pyramid that's telling us to eat 
six to eight servings of grains and limit red meat intake, like maybe that's actually was not based on, you know, good evidence and good logic and is not evolutionarily consistent with what our ancestors did. So that was like the first clue to me that I was like, okay, maybe there's another way to look at this stuff. Um, as you guys know, the paleo diet's kind of like pretty focused on nutrition and there's obviously way more aspects to health than just nutrition, but it clued me into this idea that was basically, um, if you look at human evolution based on what we think we know about it, it's a very long period of time that humans evolved over. And, and regardless of how you define humans, whether it's like homo sapiens and you say that was 300,000 years, well, obviously homo sapiens came from something before that. So the evolutionary period goes back a really, really long period of time. And the world was like pretty consistent during that period of evolution. There weren't these like totally dramatic changes where humans just went from consuming like one diet and then a completely different diet, you know, the next year. And then you look at the things that got introduced into the human diet in the last just like hundred years. And it's like wildly different. And then even the paleo diet would say that even agriculture in the last like 10,000 years is a relatively recent development. So that stuff, that was like an eye-opening framework for me to think about things with just saying, okay, you know, you're a kid and you're like, oh, 100 years, that's, that's a long time ago. And then you realize like, okay, no, that's a blink of an eye in evolutionary terms. So let me actually think about what is more evolutionarily consistent with what my ancestors would have done because that is likely what is best for my body. And then getting into the paleo diet, like some, it just made sense. Um, I also tried it and felt better. And one other thing that comes to mind that was interesting about it was when uh, some Europeans came over to the Americas, I guess, you know, 1500s, 1600s, whatever, they would write in their diaries about how healthy the Native Americans looked, like even up to a late age. And you just had to wonder, you're like, okay, this is the closest thing we have to an experiment where there's a group of people living a more, what I would call ancestrally consistent lifestyle. And there's these other people living a more industrialized lifestyle. And the industrialized people were commenting saying like, look at these people, they look so much better than us. Like they're healthy up to later ages in their lives. Um, so that's such a small thing I wanted to mention, but yeah, basically it was like paleo diet launched me into this stuff. And then that there's a million other things we can get into, but yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of the story there. No, that seems to be like a pretty familiar story with a lot of people in the space. I mean, I, myself, uh, I think paleo was like the first thing I had heard of when I started developing autoimmune stuff several years ago. And that was sort of the first space. And I found people like Terry Walls, which is still sort of a spinoff of paleo philosophy, but still a lot of focus around food. And I noticed for myself, like where I had improvements and then where I still had drawbacks. And I was trying to put those pieces together because I was like, why? It seemed like everyone I was talking to, I was like, man, food has to be the thing. Like, why isn't it like everyone's telling me I'm impeccable with my diet now and I'm still having these issues. And that's where I think what you said a really cool word or two words earlier where you're talking about being um, ancestrally like consistent or uh, biologically consistent. I like those words because... It, it, it's sort of nuanced, um, but that's when you get into all the things we're kind of going to talk about a little bit later in the podcast. Even with Bitcoin being decentralized, it's all tied together. You learn like your health and wealth system is all really one thing, and it's all 
teeter-tottering back and forth. And so what's so fascinating about it is like when you look at it even further and you look at, okay, what's my environment like beyond just my food environment? And you're like, wow, this, everything that I've grown up knowing, not only in, in the food systems messed up, but just everything. And you realized how, how broken the centralized system is, whether it's finance or health or food, all, all those things, um, you had to look at it from a decentralized lens. Um, and, and I kind of want to again do here because you're back East up at NYC. Um, how has what you're doing been perceived? Well, I know how it's been perceived there, but, but how has it been trying to um, meander those rivers where in New York City, there's talk about like uh, minimizing the amount of animal products you can buy and all these various things. Um, how are you navigating that yourself? And we'll kind of get into the Bitcoin stuff in a little bit. Yeah, thankfully, those types of trends in New York City are like just more like cultural trendy suggestions at this point. Like it's not anything that you have to follow. I mean, if, if it gets to that point, I'll be out of New York City very quickly. Um, but uh, I mean, you bring up an interesting topic because I don't have kids yet, but the prospect of raising kids in an environment where, you know, let's say you're sending them to the local public school and they're telling them like, yeah, you know, vegan three days a week. And like now, now it's like it's become a lot more real than just like, oh, there's some influencers posting online about, you know, limiting meat intake or something. So if it becomes a lot more real, I would distance myself from that pretty quickly. Um, and just like living in New York in general, I'd say there's ways to live closer to an ancestral lifestyle than what New York probably gets, you know, stereotyped for, uh, justifiably, you can live in New York and you can go out until 3am every night and you can drink every night and do a lot of other stuff every night, or you can live in <clears throat> a slightly quieter part of town. You can go out to a park in the middle of the day, take your shirt off, get sunlight. Uh, you can even in certain parts of the city, you, you could be grounded in the grass, like do some pull-ups, get a workout in. Um, you can order, obviously you can order food from all different types of places that comes from regenerative agriculture. There's even some local ish farms that will drive to New York city that you can order from. You could pick up food from them, raw milk, like corn and soy free eggs, regeneratively farmed grass fed beef, like all that good stuff. So you can like do a decent job in New York city. Obviously it's not the same thing as like having a ranch and like, you know, growing your own food and like going to the rancher directly or anything like that. But uh, I think I've found ways to, to make it work having been in New York for almost 15 years now. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's actually more accessible for a lot of things, you know, a big city in general. Um, you know, you have all the local producers in probably the whole New York, greater New York City, New York State, New Jersey, North Jersey, at least, um, area coming to you, right? So you probably have an abundance of options um, that if you want to go down that rabbit hole of, you know, procuring food locally and not just going to your whatever average grocery store, yeah, that's a, a big convenience. And that was something that was really nice to have and that I sometimes miss, uh, you know, being in a far more rural setting here. You have to be a lot more deliberate and really get into the community aspect. But I think, um, and yeah, the grounding, you, you can make it work for sure. And I mean, anybody can go outside. Uh, for me, I, I just had enough of kind of like the noise 
air pollution and then the non-native EMFs and the traffic. So, but New York City actually, you know, you don't even need to own a car. So I guess you can actually, I would highly recommend if you, it's probably way better if you don't own a car, at least if you're right in the city. Cause I used to occasionally drive in from like Jersey city and I would just lose my mind <laughs> trying to go through like the Lincoln tunnel. But yeah. How have you kind of, obviously your evolution and what matters in terms of health has, has evolved. And, you know, if you're just on diet, then people are like, Oh yeah, you know, it's fine. It doesn't make it really a big difference uh, of living in a city versus living out in nature. Um, and I see all these guys, you know, these keto guys, these, you know, primal guys that they post a picture of their steaks, whether it's raw cooked or whatever. And yeah, they're in like a 10 story high rise and under blue light all the time. So it's a bit of this like, uh, are you really primal? I don't really know. So how has your thought kind of evolved around that? And I guess in general, what made you think about more than just diet? Because like you said, paleo, very heavy on the diet. I think it's foundationally great, but we know that there's more to it than just diet. Hey friend, thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast, it would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education. Yeah, it's a great question because like you said, some people start with diet and they just kind of stay there and they, they don't branch off into these other things. And other people seem to, that's just like the tip of the iceberg. And then you're like getting into so many other things. I think for me, I like to believe that I was applying the same type of logic that got me so interested in the paleo diet, meaning basically looking at it and saying, wait a minute, our bodies were effectively designed by us being in our environment over this really long period of time. And that's what kind of made us, uh, made certain uh, nutrition and food appropriate for us. And then we changed it in, a, in the relatively recent past. Like that was the big light bulb moment for me that made me think, okay, paleo diet makes sense. Food pyramid does not make sense. But if you can apply that way of thinking to way more than just your diet. And like, let's go into the other huge one would be light. And we talked about some of this in our Twitter spaces, which was, was awesome. But uh, it, if, I think it, it's even easier for me to grasp the importance of light and how big we've changed our exposure to light than it is for diet. Um, and apologies if there's any background noise, but... Um, with some other people here. Uh, so with light before 150 years ago, there was, there was no such thing as artificial light. Of course there was fire for a reasonably long period of time, but in the grand scheme of things, fire is closer to like moonlight than it is to daylight or to, to blue, to true like blue light. So if you think about it, Humans for our whole period of evolution, whatever humans evolved out of, whatever came before that, whatever came before that, all the way back to like single-celled organisms on this, on this earth, the environment they lived in was one of cycles where there was a period of light followed by a period of dark. And that cycle only got broken in the last 150 years. 
So to me, like, I don't think you need to have a PhD in chemistry or biology or be a nutritionist or anything to understand that you just take a system that operated a certain way for a really long period of time. And then you make a dramatic change like, okay, now humans can be exposed to bright blue light at night. The, the burden of proof should be on the person who is saying that that would not have a big impact. So for me, it's just obvious that that is going to have a huge impact. So yeah, we, I'm sure we can get into this. You guys will probably have tons of thoughts, but it really was me just taking the same application of what I think is logic and reasoning that made me interested in nutrition and just applying that to light and saying, wait, hold on a minute. There was this massive change in the last 150 years and it's, it's not appropriate for the human species. Totally agree. And it's interesting, too, because we've had discussions um, with uh, Dr. Moore Ed and uh, Terry B. Wellness and people about like circadian health, biology and all these things. And what, what was the biggest um, realization for me around light, which didn't come till way after I had already discovered diet change and, and all of these other sort of ancestral principles, but it was in, in reflection of when I was at my lowest of lows, not only physically, but mentally suffering from, I had, my backstory is I had an eating disorder and then developed all, I mean, stuff and all those crazy things. But I, I had like anxiety and depression for years before that. And I never really took into account the fact that I was pretty recluse and indoors 99% of the time. Like my work was inside. I would come home from work and I'd stay inside again. I'd play video games till late at night. Um, my, my apartment was uh, ground level. It was always dark and only lit with light indoor lighting. Um, and it was just like, everyone talks about uh, seasonal affective disorder and everyone can sort of talk about how like, oh yeah, it's lack of like sun and blah, blah. But I don't think people like, it just makes me think like in the last 30 years, for example, as my generation was growing up and like Tristan's and, and yours and everything, the, the amount of rise in, in just looking at mental health disorders has been astronomical. And I know since I've changed the way I've approached light and reducing as much artificial light at the inappropriate times as possible, and also waking up with the sun, all these various things, like my sleep's been better, um, my anxiety is like massively reduced, um, I don't really have depressive episodes, um, I, I feel like I think more clearly, um, it, it just makes me think like we were hanging out with, um, we we're at a, a friend's wedding last week and I was hanging out with, uh, my girlfriend's family and they, uh, had their nieces and nephews there sort of seven years and younger. And all of them had iPads mm -hmm. and they were glued to these things. Like we have as a two-year-old who was glued to her iPad, would drag it around the house. And when you would take it away, she would flip out. She would flip out this kid. Um, never mind the weird kid shows that she was watching on YouTube for kids. That's some weird whack stuff. <laughs> That's some weird stuff. But I was thinking, I was like, man, and, and, and she, uh, two of these younger kids who are, I believe six and, and five are already diagnosed with like anxiety disorder and like something else or other. And I'm like, holy crap. I mean, no one's connecting these dots about like their environment that they're being raised in when they're when they're like myelin's like still not developed and like their eyes are still like developing, it's just crazy. So it's one of those things where once I think you break through that initial wall, like you said, finding paleo and being curious and you have that innate curiosity, it sort of, it sort of grows and then everything sort of falls together.
but if you're not in that loop, it, it's sort of like you're living in the dark in Plato's cave. Um, and you've just gotten out of the cave. You're coming back in to tell everybody about this great stuff you learned and they just don't believe you. Um, and so for me, my, sort of my question is like, um, have you always had, had this innate curiosity of like self-embetterment and self-improvement or were you still dealing with issues that led you to sort of diving into some of this other like quantum stuff? Because I know a lot of people that they got better doing X, Y, Z or what they presume to be better doing like carnival or something like that. And then they just stopped being curious about learning about other things. And so they're stuck in that diet space when I think there's just so much more to, to learn and to, to expand upon. So I just sort of love to dive into that part of your story. Yeah. And I think that gets into some of why is there this overlap between people who are interested in uh, some of the, let's say the flaws in the healthcare, nutrition, met systems of medicine, treatment, things like that and identifying and fixing some of the flaws in the monetary and economic system. And I think it's because once people do identify something that they say, whoa, there was this thing that I was taught and I now have come to the conclusion that it was very wrong. Um, once you have that moment, you're going to look at other things and just say, is the same thing going on here? And, you, you know, to be fair, that you could take everything to a, an extreme in a bad way, right? Like I'm sure there's some people out there who say, you know, now they're looking for like the flaw in every system and maybe they're finding flaws that aren't really there or something like that. But I think it's become pretty common for people to say, or this is basically what happened to me. Um, to, to answer your question, I was not really like in high school or even early college. I was not the type of person who was like, questioning everything and saying, no, the teacher's wrong. If anything, I was the opposite. I got good grades because I just did what the teachers said. I did what my parents said. I wasn't like questioning the foundations of the systems I was being taught. I was just like, yeah, food pyramid. Okay, sure. I can memorize what's, what's in the food pyramid and get a hundred on this test. Um, it wasn't until later in college that I looked at it kind of for myself. I was like, does this even make sense? And Stephen Lupka and I have laughed about this. Sometimes Bitcoiners joke and say, what was the thing that radicalized you? And we're like, it's like tongue in cheek. We don't think we're like truly radicals in a bad way. But um, I said, for me, it was the food pyramid. I was like, how many years did I just sit there and people told me that the food pyramid is the right way to eat? It's based on science. If I was sitting there in eighth grade health class and I questioned the food pyramid, they would have been like, you're anti-science, you know, this is what the experts have done. And if you go against it, you know, you're just being rogue and dangerous and whatever. I was like, all right, well, that was completely wrong. So what else is completely wrong? Um, so that's kind of how it started for me. Um, but like I said, I was not someone who always questioned things. It's just when I got the first one that I was like, okay, this is not correct. Uh, for me, it was just, it, it seemed obvious to say I have to at least ask if other things I'm being taught are incorrect. And I think that's why so many people um, go to these topics and there's overlap. And then just last thing I'll say, there probably are tons of topics like this that could attract people. But for me, these are the biggest topics. Let's, let's just call it health and money. These are the biggest topics you can't, unless you're going to live a hunter-gatherer lifestyle somewhere, you cannot opt out of money. It, it's not a choice to have money 
have an impact on your life. Health is very obvious. Even if you are a hunter-gatherer, you can't opt out of health affecting your life. So for me, I think that's why these two topics have consumed me for the last 15 years. I can't think of more important topics than health and money. There's other topics out there. You could immerse yourself in you know, 16th century English literature, right? I'm sure that's like a rabbit hole of its own. The reason I don't want to fall down that rabbit hole is because I could go my whole life not really knowing about 16th century English literature, and it'll probably be fine. My life won't be any different. You can't opt out of understanding health and money. They're the two biggest things that affect you individually, and they're the two biggest things that affect society as a whole. So that's why I'm just like deeply passionate about them. I continue to find something every day on one of those two topics that I'm just amazed by. And I, I really think they are the rabbit holes that, that have no bottom. Yeah, wow. I mean, it, there's so many parallels to exactly the frame of mind that I have, that I had when I was like writing, writing my book. I was, I was just trying to conceptualize that the people your health and your wealth are literally the two most important things. Like that's it. And that's exactly what you're saying here. It's so true. Yet 99% of people don't even give it a second thought because they're just too ingrained in the system or they're just too preoccupied with all the social distractions, social media or what have you, entertainment. Uh, and what you're saying is true but you're also saying it to people that are like us and people like us look through the world from this decentralized, you know, thought provoking lens. And once, yeah, like you're saying, once you look at it one way, Oh, the food pyramid, the whole food system's rigged. Well, what else is rigged? What else is, what else has changed? What else have we been lied to about? And then you keep going. But to be honest, most people who even change their diet don't do that. And I just I struggle. Even the more radical people are still really, really fixated on diet. And I think it's because they don't they maybe they're like, yeah, the light environments change, you know, it's good to maybe block some blue light. But then, you know, you get deeper and you start talking about EMFs or, or something like that. And they're like, oh, that can't be that big of a deal. I'm like, how can you not? think this is changing and this is impacting your health. If the you're on board with the food, you know, it's like step one, you're like, okay, maybe the light stuff, you're like, okay. And then here, you know, there's, there's so many things that have changed and you could go into the environmental toxins piece and glyphosate and what have you. But for you, you know, I guess, what have you done? Was this a very gradual kind of process for you learning these things? And then I want to get into implementing changes in your actual life. Because for me, I early on was like, yeah, I had blue light blocking glasses. And I was like turning my phone on airplane mode. These are things I've done for four years now. And, you know, I got into that from listening to Ben Greenfield. Then I really didn't dive deep, deep until the past year. And I was writing a lot about the food system and regenerative agriculture. But for you, has this been like a gradual okay, I'm turning the lights off at night or I'm wearing blue light blockers and now, you know, I'm turning the Wi-Fi off at night. Like, how has this progression happened? And what have you noticed kind of had the most profound effects? So if someone's maybe in the position where they are starting to get these things and why they matter, what is like a realistic, hey, this is something you can do that's that's pretty easy that had a good uh, effect, a good ROI. For me, that was not you know crazy out of this world because obviously you're still living a, 
a modern lifestyle in a populated area, which resonates with a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would say I'm far from living the ideal ancestrally consistent lifestyle. Um, like you said, just living in the biggest city in the country. Um, I'm not going to be checking all the boxes that I believe I should be checking, but I still think there's a lot of things you can do to just move the needle in your own life. Like we all said, nutrition is a big one. We're, we're not saying it's, it means nothing. We're just saying that's kind of the first one. That's the tip of the iceberg. It's easier for people to understand you eat two to three times a day. Um, so it's just easier for them to think like, Oh, that has the biggest effect on me. Um, I, I do just nutrition wise, I would say this is probably the obvious stuff, but I'll just say it quickly. Um, having some break from consuming carbohydrates, whether it's like reducing carbohydrates to once a day, whether it's having at least like a two to three week period in the year where you actually do reduce carbs for that whole period. I, I, I do that at least once a year. Um, I'm not like a keto maximalist guy that says you can never eat carbs and you've got to be keto forever. But I think there is a huge benefit to giving your body a break from consuming carbs. And even if you do that for just two to three weeks in a year, I think there's there's tremendous benefits. Um, so, and then other stuff in the um, nutrition category would be, uh, as any Bitcoiner knows, <laughs> cutting out seed oils, I do think has a huge benefit. I'll tell you guys this, out of all like the crazy things that I'm into, uh, whether it's Bitcoin, whether it is nutrition and health stuff, uh, whether it is alternative theories on human civilization, whether it is architecture pre and post 1913, we'll, ha we'll have to do separate episodes to get in all those things. But like out of all these crazy things I'm into, seed oils might be one of the easiest things. Like I mentioned seed oils to someone and be like, here's the history of them. Here's what plants they come from. Here's the process to create them. Here are the companies that pioneered them. I, I might have like an 80% hit rate with people and they're just like, oh my God, seed oil, I don't want to consume seed oils ever again. Whereas like I start talking to people about Bitcoin and I wish the hit oh, rate yeah. was 80% on Bitcoin. <laughs> that, I wonder if it's because like you tell them, oh, just use like butter. And they're like, well, I didn't know I could do that. Butter's great. <laughs> I remember growing up, my mom went through this like very short period where she's like, oh, you know, margarine is supposed to be healthier. But then after like a year or even a couple of months, she's like, screw this. All the restaurants <laughs> use butter. Like I grew up like as a chef and we, we, you know, she worked as a chef and then she grew up in a small town. She's like, everyone's using butter. We're not using this shit. So I, I, it's literally tastes way better to not use seed. Like seed oils are disgusting. Like they taste so bad. So maybe that's why. And I think it's just the yeah. barrier to entry is smaller. I think it, yeah. it, it, like, I think more people on a wider scale can relate to food than they can. Uh, I don't know relate to finance per se, but it's like, I feel like everyone has like something with food. Everyone has like this emotional, cultural or whatever connection to food. Like everyone's got that in some way, shape or form. So I feel like that's why, and that's why like, it's, it's so easy to, to sell. And that's why I think so many people that could probably go further in the space that are big in the space, maybe stay because they know they can hit the most people with food. Um, and then it, it's a little unfortunate because you, you feel like they, maybe they can push them a little further, but it's like, I just feel like the barrier to entry with food, it's the same with like exercise. That's why like the fitness industry is so freaking huge. It's, it's all visual too. 
it's all visual. But the seed oils um, is like, okay, just change this one part, right? It's like you don't have mm-hmm. to go carnivore. You don't have to go – because going carnivore or going keto, that's a big ask. But you're like, all right, all right. Do whatever you're doing now. Just stop using these cooking oils. And they're like, all right. You know, I could probably do that. Oh, and it's going to taste better. Yeah. <laughs> But I'll let you continue. <laughs> no, those are great points. It is it is easier, yeah, lower barrier to entry for sure. Um, they do, it is much harder to, if you're eating out of your home, as you guys know, to avoid the seed oils. But even if you could go for something that's steamed or ask for it to be cooked in butter, um, that's like relatively easy ask too. So uh, people seem to be on board with that. Um, I would experiment with stuff, obviously, in the regenerative agriculture world. If you have some sort of intolerance for dairy, try raw dairy. Um, this is one that I've been doing in the last like year or so. And I think there's a really clear, logical way to explain it, and uh, raw dairy specifically. So if you look into the history of pasteurization, and I, I remember being a kid learning about Louis Pasteur, where pasteurization comes from. And he was kind of viewed as like this guy who really saved a lot of people. And I think it was true at the time. But the reason is because they were choosing between two options. They had milk that was being brought to cities from decently far away. They didn't have good ways to store it, to keep it cold, to keep it fresh. So their options were drink this raw milk because before pasteurization, there was no, it was only raw milk, um, drink it, but it might be bad. And then people are going to get sick, um, cause it was spoiled and not kept well or pasteurize it. And then you can consume it. Like those were the two options they're choosing from. If that's all you have, then yeah, go pasteurize. But it's like, people don't seem to have asked, well, what about the third option? Like, what if we can have the raw dairy and it's fresh and we're not worried about it being spoiled? Like that to me, that's what we should be going for. But it's been like, you know, over a hundred years of people just saying, oh, we've got, you have to pasteurize your, your dairy. And then also I think there's just value in people experimenting for themselves. You know, it, when I was a kid, if someone would have offered me raw milk, I would have been like, no, they said it's bad for me. Like I'm definitely going to get sick from it. I've been drinking it for like a year and it tastes great. Um, have not gotten sick. Like in any way from it. Um, so sometimes you just have to put these things to the test yourself. Uh, so that would be another one on the dairy front. And then just like taking off a few things in like moving the needle stuff that I think people could do the low hanging fruit, make it a point to be like ground yourself, actually physically, uh, touch the earth. Um, you guys probably know the name Laird Hamilton, big wave surfer. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's, he's into all this stuff. I actually was able to meet him and his wife, Gabby Reese and, uh, Wim Hof, the Iceman in 2016. I went to like a fitness retreat with them, just kind of learned how they operate, got to talk with them for a while, but he's big into, to, um, being grounded that there's, there's some benefits to touching the earth like that. And that might sound a little, you know, hippity dippity, but, uh, it, it again, it aligns with this, We've done a we've done a ton of podcasts on grounding, so this is oh. yeah. You're good. So okay. our audience is all on board <laughs> with with grounding. Don't worry. All right, cool. And, but again, it like you can always go back to this concept of is this ancestrally consistent? And the grounding, light, 
I love this thought experiment where people like us three would tell someone now, hey, man, it's really beneficial if in the morning you go outside and get natural light and, you know, touch the earth with your bare feet, right? Like we would all believe that. We're like, there's huge benefits there. Nowadays, that's, you actually have to go out of your way to accomplish that based on where most people live. But like you just think back a few hundred years that if you told someone like, hey, get morning sunlight at the beginning of the day, they would have been like, what the hell else am I going to do? Like there, there was no concept of I'm going to stay inside and sit here and turn on my light bulb and not see the sun the whole day or until 11 a.m. So like you have to remember that there wasn't like people opted into grounding and getting circadian rhythm during human evolution. It, that, there was no other choice. So we're just like highlighting that your body was actually designed to live in this environment. And it's only relatively recently that things changed. So that's the lens that I look at with everything. If someone could offer me, you know, good evidence that says, hey, human evolution didn't happen the way you think it did. I'm all ears. I'm, I'm willing to listen to that because that's a foundation of, of how I think. But until I see that compelling evidence, I'm still going to go with the framework of we did it for a really long time and the changes in our modern world are relatively recent. So you have to be aware of what those changes are going to do to you and they're likely going to be negative. So that, that's the lens that I'm looking at so many different things. No, that's actually, I couldn't have put it better. That's such a good way to look at it in the lens. And it's, it's actually kind of amazing based on what you just said too. Like not that long ago, most of these principles were just second nature because we had to do it just because we had to do it. We didn't have a choice. Um, it's amazing how fast we can forget those things based on uh, just how fast technology has changed and um, general, general generational wisdom has, has been lost. Because um, all conversations with my grandfather about things that they would do. And this, this was like in like the thirties. Um, but like, I'm like, man, like looking at it, I was like, oh yeah. It's, it's like mostly actually it's the cooking stuff. Like they were using lard and like all this like stuff that is like demonized now. And I'm like, all of them were skinny and like fit and working on the farm and like lifting heavy shit around. And uh, no one was really dealing with like a lot of the, mostly I, I talk a lot about the mental health stuff with them because I find it so fascinating. That's just so crazy today. Um, but no, it's, it's interesting. You put it in the lens like that. Um, but I think there's just like this, this layer of, uh, convenience that everyone is just hardwiredly addicted to. Um, and, and like, I always, I always use the DoorDash example cause I have many friends that spend ridiculous amounts of money a month on DoorDash. Um, but it, it's just like this convenience of, Oh, it's like, I can just lay in bed or whatever and not have to go outside it's the it's always it seems to be an inconvenience for people to like do the things that would come natural to our biology or that we need and actually the, the light thing is really interesting because everyone talks about you learn in school like pretty much the reason we're alive is like light and like water right so like light the sun but now it's everyone like there's like this uh this mismatch of like the the sun gave us life but it's also going to give you cancer so it's like this this weird dynamic that we live in now. And so I think if people would just, it's very, I think it's harder to do unless you have an issue, but a lot of people have issues now. So I wish they would just be open-minded to it, but you just gotta be open-minded to listening and then kind of discern for yourself. You know what I mean? I think that's probably the greatest gift that I found uh, in the community is just like being willing to listen to people and trying to go in 
without uh, a, a bias per se um, of like, oh, this is actually right when I've been wrong 110 times now. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's pretty good. And it goes like the same with, with same with finance. Um, but I think the most difficult part is we live in a world where everyone seems to be trying, at least the mass majority, seem to just be trying to get by. So when they have that downtime, they just want to be lazy and lay around and do nothing and watch Netflix or whatever. And so it's, it's hard to want to push yourself when you've beaten yourself up five days a week just to barely survive, pay your mortgage, and feed your kids. And so that's why I think this discussion around decentralized finance and, and health is, is even more important now than ever because it sort of gives those people like a way to look at, okay, maybe if I invest some time in this, learning about that, putting my money here instead of there, you can get ahead for real. Um, but longer you wait, the harder it gets, you know? Absolutely. And you made me uh, think of a couple things here. I think there's a few different ways that you can arrive at, we'll just call it like truth or a conclusion or a viewpoint. And I think one is what we've talked about a lot. So we, I don't need to belabor it, but this idea of being evolutionarily consistent, ancestrally consistent, um, using logic to say, okay, the human species lived over this long period of time and this is what life was like and the changes we've made in modern life are relatively recent. To me, that's, that's number one in figuring out what is good for humans to do. Um, number two would be run some sort of controlled study and say, you know, let's like try to do this. You know, these humans get this, they eat this food and that, but you have to remember, how do you run a, a controlled study? You only change one variable at a time. And this is where, um, that, that's why I don't, some people think like science is all about studies and randomized controlled trials. And I mean, it, it is if you can do it in an actual controlled way. If you're trying to figure out which car goes from zero to 60 the fastest, like, yeah, you can probably run a, brand, a, a controlled uh, experiment to figure that out. If you're trying to figure out is this substance, food, whatever, um, okay for pregnant women to consume? Do you actually believe that they ran a study that involved tens of thousands of pregnant women who decided to just donate their bodies and their child's bodies to quote unquote science to figure out if that was okay? No, that study doesn't exist. And even the studies where people are willing to take part in them, you can't actually control for everything. You can't control for what everyone else does in their lives, everything else they consume. You can't control for their genetics. Everyone has a different genetic starting point. You can't, they're, they're not all going to be in the exact same environment in the same part of the earth. So studies are like, you get like a little bit of information from them, but they are not the end all be all when it comes to things you're trying to learn about human beings. And then um, the th I'm sure you guys have thoughts on that. I would love to hear it. But the third one is you can kind of just look at what I guess I would call correlations. And Ryan, you were just talking about, you know, people being healthier in this era when they consumed lard and, and things like that. If, if we looked around at people in the world and we saw that everyone was thriving and, you know, had minimal amounts of chronic disease and, you know, mental health was really non-existent and everyone was eating the food pyramid and listening to, you know, the mainstream, 
then maybe we shouldn't be questioning it as much. Like we'd be like, all right, maybe this is working, but you got to look around and just say, do, do people look healthy in general? And like Ryan mentioned about mental health issues at all ages, cancer starting earlier, chronic diseases are just going off the charts everywhere you look, you know, wouldn't that just make someone say, okay, let me look and see what's causing some of this stuff. So anyway, I wanted to throw all that out there. I know it's a lot, but I think those are like three different ways you can arrive at a viewpoint on something. And I think people stress the studies way too much. I think the human evolutionary consistency is number one. And then just the correlation should clue you in to say like, hey, are we doing the right thing or should we be exploring other options? Are you interested in 100% grass-fed, grass-finished bison meat? I'm excited to be a partner with Falls Family Ranches. Based in Wyoming, Falls Family Ranches is raising high-quality bison meat the way nature intended. As a native large ruminant of North America, bison is one of the most nutrient-dense foods you can consume. If you're interested in trying out their bison boxes, use code TRISTAN, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, 10, for 10% off your first order. Yeah, this the studies bros are, they just make my head hurt often. And I look <laughs> and I read a ton of research papers, but guess what? Is there any research papers studying a 27-year-old male who's often grounded, often in the sun, has no underlying health conditions? No, there's not. So um, I'm... I don't know what I'm reading about. You know, you, you can't make any conclusions because there's so many variables. Are they controlling for the light environment? No. Are they controlling for the EMF environment? No. Are they grounded? No. So like none of these things are controlled for. And then, yeah, you just get this whole slew of studies. You get industry funded, funded studies, which muddle, muddy the water and, it becomes just a mess. And then you get people like Lay Norton out there that are just like professional study readers and they'll tell you your study is nonsense and his study is fine. And yeah, so it is what it is. But for me, it always comes back to this logical lens, like step back, look at the bigger picture of what might actually make sense fundamentally. We're electromagnetic beings. If you alter the light component in our environment based on what you know will that have an effect what will that effect be it will be likely positive likely negative if you completely change the diet yeah you know with processed things and added chem chemicals and preservatives like yeah what do you think is going to happen but then you get into these things like the blue zones which is kind of like a mixture of what you're saying here and everyone touts on that. And it's very like diet focus, which is c completely not even the, the highlight of, of what these communities are doing. But then you're looking at people and communities from 50 to 100 years prior, right? Like these folks are 90 to 100 years old now. Okay, you're 25, you're 35. That's not going to help you. You can't grow up. You can't go back and grow up in the 40s or in the 50s. So if you're, you think someone living in Sardinia who's 20 has like a guarantee to just live to 100 as well now, you're out of your mind because the environment is completely different. And going back to what you said about the Native Americans, 
it's really fascinating to think about that because we used to have kind of these pockets of people where we could go and look at like, oh, chronic disease isn't as prevalent there. And now there's there's fewer and fewer and fewer. And it's because they've all been industrialized. They've all been modernized. They have everything from electricity to processed foods to artificial light. And what I've kind of realized is that the communities who got introduced to these things more rapidly and skipped kind of half the industrialization process. Like they went from right from hunter gatherer to like electricity, like nothing in between. They actually fare the worst because it's almost like us as Europeans, we had this like 10,000 year um, gradual adoption to more and more crap. And like the native Americans was like, bam, 40 years went from eating bison every day out in the wilderness every day to electrification, seed oils, processed flour and, you know, artificial light. So that's what I think is really fascinating to talk about. And yeah, I, that is fascinating because it, it kind of and that, that to me makes logical sense, too. It's like you just listed off all those things that were introduced to them in a short period of time. Like, you know, add on to that list, just uh, processed sugar, oh, caffeine, yeah. Yeah. alcohol, you know, like just getting that stuff introduced to you with like no background, um, no like evolutionary background. Like you said, prior generations didn't consume it, but then also no like cultural context of like, okay, I saw my, my dad, you know, consume this stuff and I kind of know the risks or, you know, situations it's like really hard to just have that stuff introduced into your life. And, and these things are risky, you know? Um, yeah. And all the native communities, I think around the world, not just native Americans, like any aboriginals, yeah, no. they're all hyper addicted to what alcohol and drugs, right? Yeah. There was a really good movie. Um, it was a documentary. I can't, I don't think it's the magic pill. It might be something else. Can't remember what it was. It was on Netflix. I watched it a couple years ago where it was a group of documentary filmmakers, but they went to the aboriginals in Australia who had been basically devastated by like westernized, they, their video was focused on the food systems, so, like westernized foods, like seed oils and like processed cereals and like alcohol and sugary foods. And basically they were just talking about how like the disease rates in the aborig aboriginals in Australia, like just skyrocketed all these like paleolithic diseases, like diabetes and like all this stuff and how when they went back and sort of got them on track to eating what, they ate ancestrally in their environment that these diseases went away. And so it was a really interesting documentary because I, I had never thought about it in that perspective that Tristan was just talking about with those groups being hit the hardest because, yeah, there is like that. They didn't have that lag time that we did. So it's, it's kind of a fascinating dive. Yeah. But there's, there, there's so much to, to that when you think about the principles they went back to is more than just the food. It was all the, all their other practices. I, I think this brings up an interesting point that I would love to get your guys' perspective on it about uh, whether you want to call it balance or kind of like the 80-20 rule. We have these like phrases for it. 80-20 um, rule, learning to play with fire as opposed to always avoiding the fire. Um, you could apply this to nutrition, but you could also apply it to you know kids with iPads, for example. I feel like there's different, like we, we kind of can all agree that excessive sugar, caffeine, alcohol consumption 
not a good thing for humans, right? Like we, we're all in agreement on that. But you could react to that in two different ways. You could be like, okay, uh, I'm never, ever going to have that stuff ever again. And, and maybe some people do totally fine not doing that. But I think they're the minority. I think the vast majority of people are going to consume those things at some point. Uh, and you can say same thing with uh, digital devices. Like we would all agree that scrolling through social media for like six hours a day, very bad for your physical, mental, emotional state of being. You could choose to say, okay, I'm going to go live off the grid, uh, no phone, no internet, whatever. But in my opinion, that's, that's avoiding fire. That's not learning to play with fire. And I, I think there are some things that are, are so prevalent in society that it just, it would be very hard to say, I'm never going to consume those things that I know are bad for me ever again, whether it's certain, you know, th there's, there's exceptions here. It's hard to make these general statements. It's like, I'm not, I'm not saying people should actively try to eat seed oil. That's an easy one. Like you should always avoid seed oils. I think there's like no benefit. And like you said, Tristan, they taste like shit, but for stuff that's like, if you're going to have a little bit of alcohol, if you're going to have a little bit of sugar, a little bit of caffeine, like most people are going to want that in their life to some ability, uh, to some extent. So I think it's important for them to have the ability to use it within reason. And like here I'm speaking more to the mainstream audience, but I think there's also a takeaway for people who are raising kids because it's going to be very hard for, and there's so much overlap between nutrition and, and uh, digital screens here. It's going to be next to impossible for you to say, my kid will never see an iPad ever. Um, you know, just like good, good luck. Uh, maybe you can accomplish that. I'm not telling you not to, but you know, good luck actually trying to accomplish that. I think the, the art here is figuring out how to instill in your kids, like, Hey, there's these things, it's sugar, it's caffeine, it's alcohol, it's, it's other substances. You're probably going to be around them. You're probably going to consume them. Here's what you should know about them. Here's how they affect their body, your body. Same kind of thing. There's computers, there's phones, there's social media. You're going to be around them. Let's teach people how to play with the fire rather than saying just avoid the fire completely. You made me think of that, Tristan, because I, I think that the reality is you can't avoid it. You cannot avoid it completely. And then if you have gone a long period of avoiding it, in, in your example, it would be native peoples. Then when it gets introduced to you all at once, you have no shot. Like it's, it's going to overtake you and you're not going to be able to, to play with the fire, so to speak. Yeah. And I, and I actually do agree with that. I'll just say something for Tristan jumps in, but I, it, it's sort of an interesting concept because I always use the example of when I was growing up, my house was the fun house. All my friends would want to come to my house because we had soda, we had candy, we had no limits on video games. But while all my other friends had very limited all these things, because we had access to it, the way my parents raised me in that environment, we never abused any of those things really. Like we never drank soda till my pee burned or whatever. But I noticed a lot of my friends that once they got out of the house because they grew up in a very restricted environment, went kind of off the walls with almost all those things and had some very negative relationships with it. Um, whereas it was pretty easy for me to like, it was actually quite easy for me to like at, at one point cut out soda completely because I already didn't really have a super huge attachment to it. But it's one of those things where it's like, I think individually you got to find where your vices are. 
Cause it's like, you're never going to tell an alcoholic that you're going to moderate alcohol. You know what I mean? So you got to find sort of like where that medium is for you from a tech perspective. I think it's, it's a lot about finding where your weaknesses are and really resolving the reasons you go on to social media. Like, are you looking for a hit? Are you depressed? Like, are you looking like, what are the reasons that you feel like you need to be on there excessively minus like the things you need to do, like what we're doing here. So it, it's sort of individual, but yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And I think it's a hurdle that a lot of parents now more than ever, and even more in the future are going to have to face. But like you said, it's impossible to avoid an iPad. Like every school almost now like gives a kid like an iPad or a laptop at some point. Cause like most schools, at least in my area are like half on tech, half in person or whatever. So it's like, even in class, they're learning on tech. So it's like, you're not ever going to like fully avoid it unless you homeschool. You know what I mean? If if that's your route. Yeah. I I kind of have a lot of strong opinions on, on these types of topics. But at the end of the day, you're looking to go for just consistency and improvements. Like make progress. You're not striving for perfection is what I'm trying to say. Like nobody is going to be perfect. Nobody is going to avoid all the environmental toxins. It's literally impossible. But what you can do is you can consistently progress in your lifestyle habits. And then you're also building resilience in your health. So you're able to, you know, have a higher tolerance, but then also you're mitigating the exposure. So it's like a double benefit. However, what you're saying, John, about, you know, you might be more sensitive. This is actually true. And this is where it kind of like becomes a tricky situation because when you do sometimes cut out a lot of these toxins, and I've found this especially with blue light, high EMF areas, even just, I don't know, eating just processed foods in general, they affect me way more than someone who's just living in this soup all the time. And that's just because I'm not exposed to it as much. And it's a really tricky situation because, you know, we're electromagnetic beings. And I actually read about this in a book and it was like the more finely tuned we become, the easier it is to kind of be disrupted. So it's very strange. And that's why I think actually, yeah, a lot of these more recent hunter-gatherer societies have just been completely just obliterated by modern technology compared to Europeans who have gradually been introduced to it. So it it is kind of a, a balancing act, but at the end of the day, you're not going to avoid it. So yeah, to me, pick your battles, right? You live in a modern world. You can't just escape these things. I'm not perfect and I'm on tech all the time. How are you using it? Are you creating more than you're consuming? Are you using it for educational purposes? Um, are you connecting on there? Are you building a community of like-minded individuals? Because they can be very powerful. And then it's easy, you know, if you're going to use technology before or after the sun is up, you know, maybe filter your screens. You can literally install a triple click red filter in 10 seconds or wear blue light blocking glasses that cost $40. And these are just like small things. And I think that's how you got to take it. Little wins, one at a time. And you'll notice kind of how that changes how that moves the needle for you or like you're saying go just ground outside for like five ten minutes watch the morning sun and uh, you're not you're not going to be outside all the day all day long if you work in an office it's just not realistic but you don't have to be as long as you're doing 10 30 minutes more than you were 
you're going to be in a better place. So everyone's different. Everyone's got their unique situation. Just strive for improvement, not perfection. And you'll kind of be on your way and everyone can decide what's important to them. But I can't give recommendations for someone who's yeah living in New York City or living in a different area than me and has a different job. But I can try to just, you know, set an example of what I think is important. And that's uh, that's all you can do, really. Yeah. And I think, too, just before uh, John pops in, I just want to say one thing where it's like I, I feel like if you if you've been really sick and you come out of it, the more addicted you are to feeling better and you don't want to go back. So you're willing to go further yeah. with practices than someone that maybe hasn't realized how good they can feel. And so that's part of it too, is like, sometimes it's like people, people just don't know how good they can feel yet. And once they do, they're like, okay, I'm going to commit to this. And that's why Ryan and I do a lot of the things we do is because we didn't have, we didn't have an alternative really. I mean, we did, it was a dark one. And now it's like, you're addicted to feeling better. You know, I feel great all the time. Why would I not want to keep doing these things? (laughs) Totally. And, And I think the awareness and the knowledge of which things are detrimental to your health Mm -hmm. is arguably more important than, like you said, the 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 perfect execution. Yeah. Because I I think there's something to be said there where the tech example is an easy one. It's like pretty impossible to forego technology in some situations. It just makes things possible that wouldn't have been otherwise us talking on this call, you know, prime example. Um, but if you're comparing that with a young kid who isn't even aware that spending eight hours a day on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, if they're not even aware of that, it's going to spiral out of control so easily. So I think as a parent, like a parent teaching the kid, like, Hey, you're going to do this thing, but FYI, you need to limit it because it's very addictive and it's not naturally a good thing for you. That to me is the, that's way more important than trying to tell someone like, Hey, you have to be perfect and this thing's bad for you. Therefore you can never do it. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And that's why I'm so big on the education piece. And some people are like, Oh, well that's like realistic. And I'm like, no, you don't need to do this. I just want to show you that this matters this is my life, right? And this goes back to sovereignty. This goes back to personal responsibility and decentralization at a, at a whole level, high level. It's your life, right? Like, but you need the education to be empowered to decide what is important for you and your family. Then you can prioritize accordingly. Personally, I don't care what you do. I care what you know so you can make those decisions for yourself. I'm not here to hold your hand and tell you you need to do X, Y, and Z. I just want to tell you these things so that you can understand because we live in a web of lies and you know flawed research and fiat money. So it's, it's hard to find the truth, but the truth resonates in, in Bitcoin, John, and you know that. So what I want to get to here before we just talk for another 40 minutes about health stuff is how did you find sound money and tie these principles to there, the same principles that I just mentioned, and then how did that ultimately lead to Bitcoin? 
Yeah, when people ask me at some point, you know, how did you get, when they find out I worked for a Bitcoin company or whatever, and they're like, oh, how'd you get into Bitcoin? My response to them is usually, do you have like 10 hours free for me to answer that question? <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll try to give the short-ish version. Um, it started around the same time as me getting into the nutrition stuff. Like I said, it was a little bit after. And uh, there's definitely some theme to hit on here. Like you guys were just saying, we, we all have different motivations. We all have different wake up calls, like triggers happen in our lives that make us have to evaluate or reevaluate something. So for me with the monetary system, I was a college senior when the financial crisis was happening. So this is 2008, 2009. And uh, I can pretty confidently say if that hadn't happened, I don't think I would have had the motivation to just start looking into monetary history, looking into Austrian economics, looking into the gold standard. Um, I just, it, there would have had to have been some other trigger, but for me, it was the financial crisis. And back then um, you, this would, you know, I'm just objectively saying what happened. It what all the experts missed it. Um, and even the ones who are tasked with running our system. So Ben Bernanke, uh, Hank Paulson, the Treasury Secretary, you know, head of the Fed. These are the people who are supposed to be monitoring the system. They have all the right Ivy League degrees, etc. And you could see one of them on TV, like Ben Bernanke, most notably, make some prediction, some statement about how the economy is fine. Literally, like a week or two later, he would just be proven completely wrong. So for me, it was like the food pyramid, but the monetary version of it. I was like, okay, you know, you guys told me the food pyramid is fine. Like I kind of went and looked for myself and, you know, that was wrong. And now you got Ben Bernanke telling me like everything's fine and he's being proven wrong. And now I'm a senior living through the biggest financial crisis since the Great Depression. And like all these people didn't see it coming. So why am I going to keep on believing this guy and all these other people who like generally believe this one new age Keynesian way of thinking. Um, so I just was like, let me, and, and to be clear, I wasn't like, Oh, I'm hardcore into Austrian economics. Now it wasn't so quick, but it was just like, I can't keep believing what these people are saying because they clearly messed up. You know, if I told you guys something like, Hey, I'm positive, this thing's going to happen everything's fine. And then it turns out I'm completely wrong. You're going to be like, Hey, let's maybe let's not believe John <laughs> so much anymore. That's just like normal human behavior. So I looked into Austrian economics, looked into sound money, looked into the gold standard monetary history, and I'm learning more about it. And I'm just like, this makes way, way more sense. And you start learning about some of the changes that just happened in the last 110 years. 1913 is the start of the federal reserve. Uh, 1971 is the removal of the base peg of the monetary system, removing gold convertibility to the dollar completely. Um, and you're, it's, it's funny how these like themes do overlap because you look at that and you're like, okay, we've really only been operating in this monetary system for whatever you want to call it, 50 to hundred years. And again, that's like a pretty short period of time relative to human civilization. So I just look at that and I'm like, okay, there's probably a better way to do this. Um, we could dive into so much more here, but I'll just for now say I've been convinced that money 
is one of the most important things in society. Again, you cannot opt out of using money unless you're going to go off the grid, be completely self-sufficient and live a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. So if you're not doing that, money affects you. So I'm one of the people who now believes that if our money is corrupted and flawed um, and distorting, then we're going to see those things reflected back in the systems of society, whether it's our systems of education, food, healthcare, science, architecture, um, energy, all these things are going to be messed up if our money is fundamentally messed up because money is the thing that coordinates all our behavior. So again, this kind of hits back on what we were saying at the beginning. This is why I'm so passionate about health and money or health and wealth, as you said, Tristan, because it's like, these are the two most important things in our lives. And uh, yeah, that's some of the story of how I got into all this in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting too. I really like that you sort of went, you went really brief, but the going over the history of like the monetary system a little bit about like switching from the gold standard to the petrodollar and all that stuff. Because the more you sort of, uh, we we're talking about at the very beginning, but the more you sort of expand, you're like, I think the better equipped you are, the more you understand history and how things have gotten to where they are now. And it's tied very much to like when you look at the history of the healthcare system with, uh, with, um, with uh why is his name escaping me big oil guy you guys know um the healthcare system or are you talking about yeah. rockefeller rockefeller okay. yeah rockefeller uh rockefeller and all stuff like that it's but it's all all these things are like tied together and like when you when you look back and you just watch or read the story of history of how we've gotten from here to there um it all kind of makes sense and i think more people are susceptible to questioning things especially after the last couple of years with just like printing money like crazy. Um, but the more, the more you look into things, the longer things have been going on to set us up to where we are now. It's not like necessarily a new problem. So I guess like for someone that's sort of like looking at this stuff, like what, how, how is your, um, I guess, uh, man, man, my mind is leaving me right now. I was going to ask how your like your mindset around it has evolved and like, what, what are your biggest like, um, why do you think this is like the more important probably now than ever to like really be paying attention to these things? Because for me, it's like, I don't want to get trapped in a place where I'm not independent because that's where I see things heading is getting to a place where you are reliant on the centralized financial system. Um, and so it's like, we're, we're in that period of like, you still have a way out through Bitcoin and various things like that. Um, I'm sure that's sort of like where your mindset has been at too. Yeah, I think it hits on the broader topic of what people usually refer to as self-sovereignty. And um, I like to separate that out, self-sovereignty versus self-sufficiency. Uh, I think those are two different things and it's important to make that distinction. It's really hard as a human being to be self-sufficient where social creatures uh, if you could band together with other people, you can get more accomplished. So it's hard to just say, I'm going to be totally self-sufficient. Self-sovereignty, I think, is something that you can strive for more and is easier to accomplish while still having those social relationships and people specializing and things like that. So self-sovereignty would be you can make as many decisions for yourself as possible without some other entity, centralized entity, 
telling you what you must do, you know, it's designing the rules for you. So again, I think there's a lot of overlap here between uh, money and the healthcare system. And I think that's why so many Bitcoiners are passionate about um, the healthcare system as well. Um, one other thing I'll just mention in case any of your listeners are not aware of this, but we're talking about sovereign sovereignty and being a sovereign individual. There is a book called The Sovereign Individual, and uh, it talks about some of the biggest changes throughout human history. And one of the recent biggest changes would have been the printing press and the Protestant Reformation, so circa 1500. And this change in technology ultimately led to, um, I'm sure a historian you know, would say there's multiple factors, which is of course true, but like this is a big one. Um, this technology, the printing press, led to information being disseminated in a much more decentralized way. That led to the centralized power that the Catholic Church had over Europe and much of the developed world at that time. Um, that led to their stranglehold being lessened. And if the Catholic Church had their way, they would have said, hey, we don't want the printing press to exist because we're going to lose all this power. But guess what? They didn't have a choice. It just you know, played out that way. So one of the big takeaways from that book is there are technological innovations that change the course of history, whether people like it or not. And I happen to believe that Bitcoin is one of those technologies. Uh, for the last hundred or so years, we've just, you know, or more, we've just been on this trend of things getting more and more centralized, um, more and more authoritarian, or at least the potential to be authoritarian. And Bitcoin's kind of this technology that gives more power to people at the individual level. And I, I hope that we're seeing this analogy play out where the technology comes and the centralized powers, central banks, governments, they don't want something like Bitcoin to exist. But I hope it is like the Catholic Church and the printing press where it, it just it, it's here now and, and they really can't do anything about it. Um, so that's like, you know, just speaking in generalities about why I'm so passionate about it, why it has the ability to truly be one of the biggest innovations and changes in human history. Um, there's a lot to get into there, but that, I think that's an interesting framing because it, uh, to an average person who barely has heard of Bitcoin, they think it's like a Ponzi scheme or something. And you tell them like, Hey, this could potentially be as big as the printing press. Uh, they'll probably think you're crazy, but when you put it in those terms of it's a technology, it totally changes the incentives and power dynamics. Maybe it'll get them thinking a little differently about it. Yeah, I think that's spot on. I also think the average person probably has no idea how impactful the printing press was. So don't give them too, too much credit there either, John. But <laughs> in reality, for me, yeah, it's Bitcoin just embodies what happens when balance is distorted and we've swung the pendulum so far in the direction of centralization, government intervention, that to me, there's always just something that's going to swing it back. And that's Bitcoin right now. You know, it came out of 0809. If 0809 didn't happen, you know, we wouldn't, maybe we'd never have Bitcoin or maybe it would have taken another 30 years. Maybe if the government, you know, handled monetary policy correctly, yeah, it would have been a different story. But because of the difficult times and the poor decisions made and the robbing of individual liberties and, you know, just quality of life is why we have it. 
And now it's installing these virtues of low time preference of, you know, personal responsibility that need to be installed that in order for the pendulum to swing back, more and more people need to adopt these virtues. And that's kind of how I see it. But for me, it took, you know, actually took kind of my lens of the health space and understanding what was wrong there and then COVID to happen to really grasp that firmly. Was that similar with you? Because it sounds like you came into it from like a sound money perspective that you already had. And then it was like, oh, hey, here's this shiny orange thing that's actually embodying everything I'm already looking for or value. Yeah, for me, I would first thing I'll say is that it took me four years from first hearing about Bitcoin to actually adopting it and, you know, getting involved firsthand. So for anyone hearing that, you know, it's very rare that someone hears about Bitcoin for the first time and they're just immediately like, oh, I grasp the significance. I'm in, you know, let me get some right now. It just it's it's rare. And this is me saying this as someone who was like totally primed to get all this. Like you said, I had this background of reading about sound money since 08, 09. Um, But my story is that I heard of Bitcoin in 2013 just from a friend. And even though I was all on board the sound money train, my thought was like, oh, they're trying to do digital sound money. That's really cool. But that'll never catch on. Um, it's, you know, gold has this history of being money for 5,000 years. So gold is a better option. Uh, also, I don't really understand it. They're telling me there's 21 million. Like, why do I know there's 21 million? And then uh, lastly, in 2013, acquiring some was way more difficult than it is now. So, you know, there might have been some Bitcoin ATMs in New York City, but I'm like, am I really going to put like $100 bills in this thing and then get a piece of paper and I'm like, what do I even do with that? What if someone's like staking out the machine? Now I'm going to go with like me and a few, but it was just like too, too much for me to get past, you know, um, maybe Coinbase was around them, but even if they were, you're like, I'm going to give them all my bank information. Like it just, it felt too weird. And then I like, even before that, I thought this is just not going to catch on. People are not going to be interested in the digital internet version of gold. It took me until 2017 to finally say, okay, let me take another look at this thing. Let me start to get comfortable with why this isn't just like a trust me bro system that somebody's going to rug pull. And then people were actually talking about it. I think 2017 was the first mainstream bull run, in my opinion. It was talked about on CNBC. It was talked about on Bloomberg. Um, It was talked about, I worked at a Wall Street bank for 13 years So at the floor of Goldman Sachs, my colleagues are talking about it. And I'm like, okay, maybe this is going to be a thing in the public's eye. Um, So I say all that just because even someone who was into sound money, it took me years to get comfortable with actually going into Bitcoin. And I think that's just the reality. I think when we see it, we want people to get it right away. But unfortunately it just doesn't work that way people need to hear about it from like seven different ways um price is also a huge factor to be honest even though this is the complete wrong way to do it this is how most humans do it when bitcoin's going from 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 to 60 people want in and they want to hear about it when it's going the other direction they don't like they literally want to buy high and and rather than buy low um you know, easier said, you can lead a hard horse to water, right? But um, 
that's just kind of how it is. So I think we have to be patient with people um, adopting it. And then just one other thought, uh, Tristan, you hit on this, which I think is important, and it ties into our conversation about health and nutrition. If we looked around and people were like healthy and thriving, the three of us probably wouldn't be saying like, hey, there's something wrong here. Let's look for an alternative answer. And, you know, you look around, it's just very obvious that people are not doing well physically and mentally. So it, to me, it makes sense to look for that alternative answer. You could say the exact same thing about the monetary system. I mean, what, what you, you could, it's not just 2008, 2009, like the market kind of got bailed out in 99 with like a coordinated bailout of LTCM, long-term capital management, if anyone wants to look that up. Then you have 2008, 2009, the mother of all financial crises, the response is a bailout. Then you have, you know, problems in Europe, the response is a bailout. Then you have uh, COVID, obviously, and the response is like a gigantic bazooka of newly printed money. Then like these, these things are getting more common and they're getting bigger every time. So again, if we looked at this and the Princeton PhDs were like managing the system and they were doing a great job, maybe we would all look at that and be like, thank God we have these Princeton PhDs. But in my opinion, it's just pretty obvious that that's not happening. They just, you just keep being slapped in the face by them not understanding the, own, the system that they're tasked with managing. So it just seems very obvious to me that we should be looking for some alternative answer to the status quo. Yeah, I mean, I wrote in my book, it said we're increasingly sick and poor. And the average person would read that and think that's just baloney, but it's true. If you look at chronic disease rates, and if you look at the purchasing power of the dollar and the amount you know people earn compared to say the price of a house or the price of common goods, yeah, it's fallen off a cliff. And what you're saying is, is spot on as well in terms of coming to that realization. It, it does take time. I mean, it took me four or five years of, you know, you know, couple years from hearing about it to buying it and then a couple years of learning the hard way and, and shit coins and so like you know covid really came about and everything culminated for me but i would say there's a lot of folks on this podcast who listen for the health aspect of it and maybe have heard you know they're getting warmer to bitcoin so i'm curious now and i talked about this we had a bitcoin meetup here in wyoming over the weekend and I almost agree with, you know, my buddy Cody, he's saying, you know, he runs Bitcoin meetups too, like 50 plus people. And we're both like, yeah, I don't think we've actually successfully convinced more than one person to actually buy Bitcoin and be fully, you know, convinced about it. And I think for me, that's my mom. I actually had to, on the phone today, you know, teach her how to do self-custody, moving her, her funds off in exchange. But for you... You know, what does that look like in terms of trying to bring someone in to Bitcoin? Um, do you even think it's like really effective to even do from like an individual level? Or how do you go about communicating that? Because I think doing something like this is really powerful because we're like, hey, decentralization is important in this aspect, this aspect, this aspect. Maybe you should consider it be a little bit hands off, but I'm curious, maybe you could give us your, your elevator speech. I think there's a lot of ways to go about this uh, question of how do we increase adoption? And I think the answer is you do it like all the above. 
you know, do the podcasts that get out to big audiences, talk about it with your friends, write an article, um, throw a conference, um, just like all of the above. Cause you really never know which of those things is going to be the trigger for someone. And like we were talking about before, it's usually not one thing that gets someone from zero to adopting Bitcoin. They usually need to hear many different things. And then even when they decide to, you know, allocate some of their wealth to Bitcoin to save in Bitcoin, they're usually not saying, okay, hundred percent of my savings goes into Bitcoin tomorrow. Like they're, they're going to dip a toe in as they should, like they should get a little skin in the game, uh, move it around, custody it, you know, wipe your wallet, restore your, like all those things that you're supposed to do. Someone should do that so that they feel comfortable with it. And, and so a lot of people, most people have to go down the crypto, altcoin, shitcoin route just to understand like, oh, this Bitcoin thing is not just the same as all these other tokens. So that process, I think, has to play out in people. Um, Another thing I would say is to know who you're talking to is pretty important because I have former coworkers who still work on Wall Street. They're professional investors for a living. They are probably the hardest people to orange pill. They just, they live in a developed country. They've been making a nice salary for many years. They allocate to investments that earn them anywhere from like eight to 15% a year. Uh, they have the benefit of the best fiat currency. Yes, it's still fiat currency, but they're not getting rugged like Venezuela and Argentina are like every, you know, however many years. So they're just kind of like, why do I need this Bitcoin thing? Like, I don't, I don't really get it. It's very hard to get through to them. And you can, you can kind of do it. I, I think, I guess what I'm trying to say here is when you're talking to individuals, you do have to think about what, what their perspective is. Like what industry do they work in? What's going to resonate with them? Uh, you know, what side of the political aisle are they on? Like you have to consider all that. Like there's just not going to be one playbook you can generally throw at, at an individual. And then most of the time, even if you make some points with them, like they're going to regurgitate all their talking points of like why it's not a good idea. So I think you just have to be comfortable with doing like the mass media type approach to see who it resonates with. Um, and then in the, at the individual level, it's like meeting people where they are and being comfortable with the fact that you're probably going to say a bunch of things that even if you're absolutely correct in saying them, people are just not inclined to be like, Oh yeah, you're totally right, John. Like where can I buy Bitcoin right now? <laughs> Wish it worked that way, but, uh, it's, it's a long game. And then last comment, um, just on price again, even my Wall Street colleagues who are professional investors, they wanted to hear, I, I got kind of known as like the guy who understood something about Bitcoin when I, before I was working at Swan. So like in 2020, 2021, some people would talk to me about uh, Bitcoin. I joined Swan in early 2022. And some people like Goldman would ask me about Bitcoin in 2021. Like they were starting to get interested we had an external speaker come in and talk to us about Bitcoin and then the price falls and then they don't want to hear about it anymore. They're like, oh, good thing I, I didn't touch that. And I think for some people, it's just going to take a few cycles for them to realize that, yes, this thing goes up and it crashes in a big way. 
but the long-term trend is very obvious of where this is going. And they just, I think, need to experience that like once or twice before it actually hits home for them. Yeah, and I think the other thing too is like from an adoption perspective, it's also changing people's mindset around like viewing Bitcoin as just another medium of USD. Because like the way I got into Bitcoin was like I I was I I purely looked at it as like oh this is an investment this is like my retirement X Y Z like this is just another way this is just like another four hundred one k for me I'm gonna put money in here it'll go up because it's had more exponential growth than all these other like investment fun things that I have over here so I'll put money in there and just let it sit whereas like the way we kind of are looking at it is like we actually want to use this for for legal tender and stuff so it's also changing that mindset of like no this isn't just looking at it as another form of USD. Um, and so I think that's just a, that's just like a mindset shift that takes time with people. And also I think it's one of those things that I think you'd agree just like with health crap, it's like a patient led or a consumer led endeavor um, to an extent where it's like less, less uh, business led or whatever. It's not like for health, it's not going to come from the medical institutions, for instance. Um, so it's sort of like, you gotta, you gotta do your own due diligence, which also I think is the beautiful thing about Bitcoin and all this decentralized health stuff is like, it puts the responsibility back on you to learn stuff and do things and be an active member of the community and, and stuff like that. And not just like lean on shit all the time. It's almost like you don't want people to just believe you right off the bat. You want them to like do their own research, come to these conclusions themselves and then slowly take the dive, slowly get more and more, um, you know, just ingrained in, in this movement. So I think it's probably by design, right? We want to attract individuals who value personal responsibility, who are skeptical, and then who are going to kind of put in the work to understand something. And like you said, that just takes time. So I think the adoption is just going to take time too. But Quickly, last question. Is there anything, you know, you're really excited about in the Bitcoin space, you know, having ETF, like, are you, you very bullish on post having once again, I'm sure? Yeah, man, I would say just to summarize my view on Bitcoin is basically that I am fully convinced that sound money is what we want from an economic perspective and from all those other perspectives, like systems of food, healthcare, education, energy, architecture, like it's going to help those things. I'm fully mm -hmm. convinced of that. And when I say sound money, I mean a money that can be, that's fixed in supply, digital, peer-to-peer, -peer, can be sent easily and cheaply from one person to another, no governments, no banks involved. That I am like 100% convinced of. There's a separate question, which is, how does Bitcoin become sound money for the whole world? And that is one that I think every Bitcoiner needs to stay a little bit more open to because as, as we know, if 8 billion people in the world wanted to use Bitcoin for every transaction in their lives tomorrow, <laughs> Bitcoin is not built out um, to that extent yet. And, and that's okay. We, like, we're rebuilding a monetary system that's outside the control of governments and central banks and commercial banks. I think we need to be patient. Bitcoin's been around for 14 years. It's not like, oh my gosh, why isn't this done yet? That's not what I'm trying to say. But I, I want to separate out those two things is that 
incredibly confident about sound money, incredibly conf- excited about the prospect of Bitcoin to become that. It's not there yet. But then when I think about you know, price and valuation and things like that, Bitcoin is still 120th, roughly, the market cap of gold. And I think it fixes some of those fatal flaws that gold has. Yes, gold has the tradition, which Bitcoin doesn't have, but Bitcoin fixes the portability flaw and the verifiability flaw um, that gold had. So just the fact that there's you know 20x of upside to Bitcoin just for it to match gold, to me is like, that's the wildly bullish, easy case to make that you're talking about an asset that has tremendous upside. That's like longer term. I just wanted to throw that out there. More near term stuff. I do find it fascinating that in the last you know year and a half, even though Bitcoin's price has fallen, there have been plenty of things that have happened that could make someone even more bullish mm-hmm. about Bitcoin's future, whether it's Russia getting cut out of the financial system, um, whether it's the U.S. now running like one and a half to two trillion dollar deficits normally in in non-recessionary times, that's just going to become normal. Um, if you look at the U.S. CBO, that's part of the government, their own forecasts are that in 30 years, the U.S. is going to have something like 130, 140 trillion of debt, that our debt to GDP ratio is going to be 185 percent. That's the government's own forecast. That's not some crazy Bitcoiner forecasting that. And this is the government forecasting this kind of like if things just grab, they don't forecast the 2008-9 recession. They don't forecast the COVID recession. So if any of those happen, those numbers are going way, way higher. Um, So all of those things kind of put together, like I look at what happened in the last few years. I look at the institutional adoption, potential ETF. Just the fact that Bitcoin is becoming more easy to acquire, to custody, to send, um, merchant adoption, like all of these things make me way more bullish for even just the next year or two. And then you layer on top of that the longer term picture that I was sharing about the fact that it's still 120th, the market cap of gold, just makes me wildly bullish. Um, But last statement, I would say I'm a subscriber to the belief that it's easier to predict the next five years than it is to predict the next five months. So, you know, hard for me to give a price prediction, um, but I feel pretty confident that when we look back five years from now, acquiring Bitcoin when it's at a total market cap of 500 billion at a price of under 30K, I think people are going to look at that and be like, oh my gosh, what an opportunity of a lifetime that was in 2023. Yeah, I think that's a great way to summarize it. And yeah, I wasn't really asking for, for any price predictions or short term. I know those are kind of just throwing darts at the bore at the wall. And yeah, it's it's to me, it's like a no brainer, right? Like you just look at the macroeconomic environment and I'm not, you know, highly knowledgeable in this topic, I'm far more knowledgeable about health stuff. But it's just so obvious, to you know, that it's broken. The system is broken. Um, but it's going to take time and who knows how we get there. And like you're saying, if the own government's forecast is, is that rough and that's not even taking any harsh, uh, you know, situations into account, what does that really mean? And at worst case, you know, allocating a small percentage could be a brilliant idea, but I think you really become a Bitcoiners when you get excited that the price is kind of 
staying low or going lower or, you know, more excited. At least that's how it is for me because you feel like you can never accumulate enough and it's only going to pay those dividends. Like you're saying in five years from now, sub a trillion dollar market cap Bitcoin, you're like, oh, that was a treat. You know, wish I took more advantage. Just like you and I are thinking, wow, wish I took more advantage in 2017 or 2016 or 2018. So everyone's early. To me, this is going to take a long time to play out because of what we just said. It's going to take a long time for people to adopt it. It's going to take a long time for people to build up the necessary infrastructure to use it. And it's going to take a long time for the fiat world to collapse. And it's easy to get caught up in the narratives that are going on, especially right now, World War Three. you know, everything that's going on. But at the end of the day, you control what you can control. And that low time preference, I think, mindset is just the most valuable asset you can have. So, John, thanks so much for coming on. We'll have to do this again in the future and maybe do a little bit more deeper macro dive. Said the same thing to Steven. Maybe we could even do a, a dual, dual podcast. That would be fun. And, uh, yeah, anywhere you want to send people to. I know you're on Twitter. Don't know if you have anywhere else. Yeah, man, this is great. I could talk to you guys all day long. Would love to do it again. And uh, Twitter at John underscore at underscore Swan. Uh, more, way more active on there now than when I worked on Wall Street. Nobody on Wall Street uses Twitter. <laughs> um, so I'm glad that I can actually post things that I'm thinking. Don't have to self-censor um, due to my <laughs> employer. So yeah, check me out there. And uh, Swan is just swan.com. We do a ton of free public educational content, kind of like we were talking about in this discussion, just the awareness and the knowledge, you have to start there. You have to know why you're doing something. And we put out tons of content for people to learn um, live content in terms of like recurring podcasts and stuff. And then kind of what I would say, timeless content, like some of the best articles. We have something called Swan Cannon, which is like, there's a Bitcoin 101 in there. There's Bitcoin and energy there's uh, Bitcoin as a payments technology. There's just like all these different sub rabbit holes within uh, Bitcoin as, pe as people learn when they start to go down the rabbit hole. So, yeah, check out Swan if you want to learn some more about Bitcoin and would love to chat with you guys again at some point. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on, man. And thanks to everyone for tuning in to another episode of Decentralized Radio. We'll see you next time.